the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill. It is good to be with you again. You could be listening to almost anything else, and yet here you are, and uh, we don't take that for granted. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network and the radio station and podcast distributor you're hearing us on. We appreciate you. Okay, so we have quite a show today. This program, as you know, is all about talking with legends, and we've been speaking to them every week. In fact, Andy Andrews, who was with us a few weeks back, wrote the foreword to the book by today's guest. Andy is a legend, and so is the comedian Jeff Allen, whose book, Are We There Yet? My Journey from a Messed Up to a Meaningful Life is our good excuse for chatting today. Now, you probably know Jeff from his years of stand-up comedy, a career that, believe it or not, has spanned six decades, but only because he started really young and in the late 1970s, but he's performed in all kinds of venues, both before he was a Christian and after he was saved. And a whole new generation of comedy watchers have been introduced to Jeff thanks to Dry Bar Comedy. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Well, listen, it is great to have you here. Um, obviously, you're a comedian, but like so many men and women, or at least men and women who make a living making us laugh, uh, there wasn't really anything funny about your childhood. Now, I mean, after reading your book, I'm uh, I'm thinking why? What's the common thread with so many comedians starting out with such a tough upbringing? I mean, let's. I wonder if you could just talk about that in general, and then we'll talk about your childhood to start. Well, I, I can't speak for other people, but I think that everybody responds to trauma in a different way, you know. And um, it's interesting. John Bradshaw did a, a whole series on family dynamics back in the '80s, and he, he had a mobile set up. And in the center of the mobile were the parents, and then all the outside were the siblings and stuff. So you'd hit the, he'd hit the center of that mobile, and all of the other pieces would start moving. And everybody responds in a different way. Um, and the youngest is normally, um, this is why it resonated with me when I read it, was the good-natured comedian. Hmm. Um, and they, they try to diffuse the dysfunction through humor. And um, anyway, I... I resonated with me because one, I was a comedian and two, it was, you know, it was my response was uh, always to flee conflict or if not flee it, try to find some humor and get everybody lightened up about it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, that's, you know, and I was more like my mother. My mother was like that. Uh, you know, my brother kind of went a lot darker than I did. He wound up on the streets. Uh, he just, I remember when he, my uncle was a pastor and my brother went to visit him and gave his life to Jesus. And um, he just, my brother over and over again told me, I just can't get it. I just don't understand it. I don't know why I can't stop doing mm-hmm. what I'm doing. And 
it was tragic, you know. And in the last five years of his life, he was sober and uh, he was a good grandfather to his grandkids. But um, my brother had a really, really hard road to hoe. Yeah. I was just so blessed that um, when I got into recovery, I stuck with it. Yeah, you had you had such a conflicting kind of relationship with your brother. I mean, you, you write about how he literally pummeled you as a youngster, which a lot of brothers do, but yet you had still admired well, him, and, and yet look how things turned yeah, out. Yeah, it was beyond the normal brother thing. He broke my nose twice in fights, and um, uh, again, he was he was a tortured soul. He really was. I, uh, I, I felt for him. He was a creative guy. Uh, I think he had an IQ somewhere in like the 150s. Uh, teachers would come to the house and ask my parents why we can't, they can't motivate him. He was a brilliant writer, wrote some wonderful poetry, and just had this part of him that just, he, uh, demonic. I mean, he just couldn't mm. get away from the chemicals and the, um, and, and the rage, yeah. you know, and uh, it was sad to watch because he was one of the nicest human beings you'd ever meet sober. And then when he drank, it was Jekyll and Hyde. Mm. Yeah. You know a little bit about that, but let, let's go back to yeah. your mom, your mom and dad, you know, your mom and you, you, sp- you write lovingly, admiringly, but obviously reflectively about your mom and dad, your dad. I love how you refer to him. Something like a maestro with a trowel. I mean, the guy helped build the Sears tower. I mean, tell, tell us about well, him. He was, yeah. He was a Mason. And, uh, I remember when he finally took me downtown to Chicago and showed me the buildings. He spoke, of them as if they were his work of art. Uh, he was an artist when he met my mom. He was a, he wanted to paint portraits. He was a, um, and he was also a jazz musician. Uh, and I was told this again, it's anecdotal from family. So I don't, I ne- he never talked about it. So I, I can't say if it's true or not, but I, uh, my aunt told me, his sister said that he was invited to Juilliard, um, out of the army, um, to, to, to play music. And he chose, uh, art school, and when he met my mom, he was an artist, and my grandfather wouldn't let his daughter marry an artist. So my father got into the trades, uh, concrete, and never really painted again until he was in his fifties, I think, late fifties. Mm. And you uh, have a, you have a kind of explain. You know, I said to my wife one day, I said, you know, if you're born to be an artist, if God puts you on this earth to create art, and you end up, uh, you know, an alcoholic and and working in the trades, you know, you understand maybe there's a, there's a, this internal, um, disconnect mm-hmm. and my father's reaction to it was, it was an angry guy, you know, but in the, when I told him I was quitting my job to do comedy full time, he said, do it, just do it. He said, you don't want to be 45, 50 years old looking back going, gee, I wish I had done that. Mm, good, good advice. Now you, there's a line in there that's kind of eye opening. You said that your dad kind of taught you, quote, whoever yells the loudest, smashes the most things, right. and is the most intimidating right. wins. Um, right. That's obviously the darker side of what your dad taught you. Um, right. Did he have a tough upbringing? Did he get kind of uh, wounded well, in Well, he life? was raised in a church, and something I, I really believe bad happened. He, I think he joined the Army early. He got his parents to sign off when he was 16 or 17 to join the military to get out. He hated his parents. And uh, my my grandfather, I, from my understanding, again, anecdotally, I, you know, when I started doing recovery, I wanted to do family history and uh, research. And um, uh, I was told that he brought his father to church for the first time, and my grandfather got saved and then became a pastor. And um, my dad uh, 
left the church, never looked back, and the mere mention of Jesus' name in our home would send them off in this this uh, uh, really over-the-top tirade, you know. Uh, and, and my mother, when, it was interesting. She was such. She was always the calm in the storm, mm. never bothered by the, it. You know, I, I'm sure it did bother her, but she would just, you know, um, sit there quietly and, you know, all these raging men around her. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, it's hard to explain. But anyway, when she was dying, I went to, her sisters were standing by her bed, and I said, do we need to pray with Mom about Jesus? She goes, oh, your mother's fine. I found out at her deathbed that she got saved at a Billy Graham crusade when she was a little girl, and she was always praying for us. Mm. And I said, she never talked about it. She goes, your father wouldn't allow it. Wow. And, wow. and um, I just thought, wow. But it explained her. I mean, it really did. I mean, even in my drunkenest and most disconnected from a, a civil life I got, I always called my mom once or twice a week and just kind of got caught up on the family, and everybody called her. Hmm. You know, we'd go, how's Kurt doing that good? He's back on the streets, you know, and then I was thinking, oh, they're doing great. They got a new baby, and they are all this. Um, and my dad was just, a, I believe, a tortured, tortured man. Hmm. And um, he never, you know, I, to my knowledge, you know, uh, he went to his grave with his heels dug in and um, never asked me. That's kind of what bothered me. I, you know, and, and it bothers me that I waited for the invitation. He never asked. He saw my testimony once and uh, never bothered to say why. Hmm. I don't get it. You know, the most profound change in my life was the day I accepted Jesus. And my dad never bothered to ask me. Hmm. You know? Well, we're talking with Jeff Allen. He's the author of a new book, Are We There Yet? And um, you know Jeff from uh, his comedy and you see him online, you go to his shows, phenomenal story and a tough scrabble beginning. Um, Jeff, you're talking about your, um, your mom and dad and, you know, you had some tough times yourself and yet you stayed in touch with your mom. I'm thinking about right now, there are people who are listening to us who have, you know, uh, wayward kids and, uh, you know, people right. who are living lifestyles they are not proud of. And yet what kind of advice do you give to moms and dads who have kids who are kind of off the reservation uh, and yet they need to stay in touch. And what kind of advice do you give when you encounter couples like that? Well, I, I'm always hesitant to, to give advice just because of the life I led. But I, um, I would tell my mom when my, she would, she was just so brokenhearted over my brother. And I eventually, you know, you, you know, it's interesting. You read Romans one, which is probably the most frightening chapter mm. to me in the, in the Bible. When God says he just turned a generation over to their own will, you know, he just kind of pulled out his guidance and his spirit and just said, I can't do anything with you anymore. And um, uh, that scares me to death, that God would ever just abandon me and just say, uh, I can't, you're so rebellious, and you're so, um, you know, uh, off the reservation that I can't, I can't do anything with you. So I'll just let you get what you want. You know, you can have everything your heart desires. It's just go. And I told my mom, I said, you know, the streets are full. They're all somebody's children. At some point, the parents, you have to let them go. And um, it's the hardest thing in the world to let them go. But you do what you can. You know, um, you pray. My grandmother called me in tears when she found out. I got saved at 40. Mm. 
She called me in tears, and she said, finally, one of my son's children made it to the Lord. I'm so grateful. I prayed for your children every day. Mm. I was 40 years old. Yeah. She had to sit and watch her grandchildren uh, just at their entire life. It's a long journey. Young life, adult life, everything just screwed up. Long journey in the same direction. Yeah, you mentioned... It is. You know, you realize it's a serenity prayer. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I can't. You can't change a rebellious heart. You just can't. You can pray for them, and, but at some point we have to let them go and, um, and, and know that God will take them if they turn, hmm. you know. But sometimes, you know, pain is, you know, what did C.S. Lewis say? Suffering was God's megaphone. You know, mm-hmm. pain is the only motivator, really. For change, I mean, if everything in your life is wonderful and good, then why would you change? So, Jeff, you mentioned that the um, you didn't see your father's soft side until the last years of your mom's life, and you know the right. way he cared for her. I'm curious, what did that do for you, both as a oh my gosh father as a husband? So profound, you know. And it was interesting. I um, I said to him, "Thank you for um, showing me." You know, and he had no clue what I was talking about. Hmm. But um, he doted on her. She was she had ovarian cancer probably for five years before she passed, and um, he doted on her to the point of exhaustion to where we had to hospitalize him after the funeral. Uh, we thought he we were going to lose him. Hmm. Uh, he had pneumonia and um, just the, the stress. And it was interesting in hospice. Um, he was just hanging by her bedside. You know, and she was in a coma. Uh, but uh, the, the nurse told us at some point that they've learned that sometimes they'll hang on until the, uh, the spouse is out of the room. Mm-hmm. So see if you can get your father to leave. So we went in and said, Dad, look, you're, you're tired. You need to go home and get some sleep, and we'll call you if, if Mom passes. And I'm not lying, Paul. Uh, I got in the car with her in the parking lot. My sister called me and said she's gone. Wow. And um, it was a, um, a um, interesting. I spoke at the funeral, and uh, I, he wanted me to talk about my mom. And I, I looked him right in the eye at some point, and I said, Mom never kept a scorecard, hmm. you know. Um, and because my father kept a scorecard his entire life, he knew everybody who wronged him, slighted him, and um, he was miserable because of it. You know, and it was interesting. I do a joke in my show about my father had <laughs> he had a hard time accepting the fact that we'll be judged at the end of our lives by God. You know, but yet he'd sit in his lazy boy and judge the entire world as it came through his television. <laughs> so I used yeah. to call it his throne. I go, Dad's on his throne again. You know, telling us. You know who's who's going to get into heaven and who isn't. Yeah, <laughs> man. I, I mean, the com- life is complicated, right? I mean, relationships don't know, but yeah. yet here you are learning from your dad and or being influenced by your dad despite the challenges. Well, let's. You, you say in your book you started drinking when you were thirteen, your first drink. Yeah, and it was kind of off yeah. to the races. I mean, that's the risk, right, for people who say, "Well, you know, a little bit of alcohol is not going to." It reminded me a right. little in The Simpsons, the, the character Barney. One day they, they show how he became an alcoholic, and he took one drink, and he turned into this raging alcoholic who was supposed to go to Villanova and be, you know tackle the world. Oh, I never saw that. That's great. <laughs> that is, but that is true. I told my sons the same thing when they got to be about 12. 
So what I said, I want you to understand something. It's in our genes. It's in our history. Mm. So I said, I don't know if you have it, but why risk it? Mm. You know. And um, they started drinking uh, probably at, when they got out of high school. And I watched them. They're fine. They're like their mother. You know, my wife can have a glass of wine with dinner. And, you know, that's fine. Um, and my boys are the same way. My youngest uh, is like his mother. He doesn't ever want to be out of control. So that was, you know, if he has a drink, which is not often, but when he does, it's that's it. He just says, I don't want to ever lose control. Did you hide it from your parents early on? No, my parents, well, you know, initially, they didn't know how much I drank. It was when I tell the story in the book about how I used to babysit for my brother. I was 16, maybe, and he would buy me beer. And uh, I would drink, uh, you know, a six-pack or whatever, drive home. And then one morning, my mother, um, getting up for school, she goes, by the way, when you go to your brother's house, do you drink beer? And I go, no, why would you ask that? She goes, well, you get up and use the bathroom three, four times in the night. And so I started going to the bathroom out the window of my bedroom. And one morning I was going to the bathroom and the, I hear, hey, and it was the paper boy. <laughs> I was, oh, know, the poor guy. So, Good grief. Yeah, exactly. You know, again, my parents were hands off with me. They really were. I, I At one point I remember telling my mom, I said, you know, I could have used a, a little bit of parenting, you know. And it's all these kids that were raised with strict parents. You know, they, they go, oh, I would have loved. No, you wouldn't. I mean, Again, it's that leaving you to your own desires. I, got, I did whatever I wanted to do. You know, and my mom's when when she found out I was you know getting into recovery, and I was I called my dad. I you know I told this story. You know, I, I got passed out in a bar, and they tied my shoes together. And I stood up and fell on my face. I was basically the town drunk, mm. and uh, all these kids that were laughing at me were brothers of friends I grew up with. They weren't even my peer group. They were the next generation down. And uh, I walked home that night with one shoe on, one shoe off, about a two-mile walk, just crying about what a loser I was. Called my dad uh, the next morning. I said, you need to come get me. And they go, we had no idea. And I said, well, you had so much trouble with with Kirk, my brother. Mm. I didn't want to bother you with my my issues. Mm. So that was the first time I got into recovery. I was 25, I think. And I stayed with them for a few months uh, while I got my life together a bit. And I started using right away, you know. Um, but um, that planted the seed of recovery. Yeah. That I knew if I ever went back, I'd stay. And that's why I went back at 31, and I've been there since. You, you meant, well, there's a line in the book where you, that really jumped out at me. And, of course, there are different types of drunks. There's the happy drunk. There's the angry drunk. You kind of struggled with your anger. You said, I found out years later how much my attitude destroyed opportunities, which is, that's a sober comment and it, yeah. it, it applies to so many people who are listening today because bad attitudes can have a devastating effect on our life you missed an opportunity well, maybe first point you know if you're going i can't get a job and maybe you're not employable you know and that and the guy that led me to the lord uh the, the uh when he put before he put the bible in my hands he was a salesman i mean he was it, phil is the kind of guy and I've never been this. I'll never be like this. But he could walk into a uh, into a room and walk out with eight business cards, and probably four of those will be friends for life. Um, and he's got a huge network of friends all over the country. He's just one of those guys. And um, he said to me, he goes, "You need to learn to smile more." And I go, "Why?" You know? He goes, "Well, you know, you're you're six foot two. You got a scowl on your face. You know, you're a big guy, and it's intimidating to people who don't know you. So they just are hands off." 
So he says, why don't you work on it? And, and I'm not making this up. I started trying to smile at a mirror hmm. in the bathroom, and it was painful. It was like, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. Who, who does this? <laughs> you know? So anyway, now I'm, you know, I, I constantly smile. I mean, I got, you know, I got joy in my life. I got other things, but it was just an interesting, it was, it was a work in progress to be basically employable. You know, yeah. you hit the stage. It's nice when you're smiling so that if you say something that may upset people, at least you're smiling and they don't take it all that seriously. You know, you know, who's um, perfected the smile Joel Olstein. Yeah, yeah, he does smile a lot. He's got a, he's got a big one. Yeah, but you, you were almost drafted. You maybe would have been drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, right? I mean, you were a ball player, and then I mean, things kind of went bust. Yeah, I found this out years later. The uh, uh, Joe, one of the um, Joe Murphy was his name, I think, and he uh, he called me uh, from Facebook or something, and we got to talking a little bit. He goes, you know, you were on our short list for the next year. We we wanted to give you one more year, you know. Um, that's the only reason I went to college. I wanted to get a contract. I, I didn't get out of high. I thought I could get drafted out of high school. Um, I, I the the rap on me was I was a catcher and I was 170 pounds, and they wanted somebody. You know, they have numbers, so they wanted me at 185, 190. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I, you know, anyway, that long story short, I I was drinking. I was drinking at lunch and then going to baseball practice uh, after drinking. You know, and uh, so needless to say, uh, the coach came to me at one point. He goes, "You're just not the guy I recruited." <laughs> you know? <So laughs> yeah, not a great recipe. 90, Ninety mile an hour fastballs. You know, you're like you know trying to catch them. Oh, these, these are fast. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, yeah, I had a freshman year. I had a good year, but um, anyway, that was uh, I never t- I've never touched the ball since. And um, it's interesting because I, I was uh, me and baseball were inseparable. It was my first love, mm-hmm. uh, passion. And um, I've never experienced the passion for anything that I had for that. We're talking with, yeah, we're talking with Jeff Allen. He's the author of a new, great new book, Are We There Yet? My Journey from a Messed Up to a Meaningful Life. Jeff, where's that Are We There Yet? I mean, it sounds like a kid in the backseat of a car, but where did that come from? That's it. You're you're on a journey. Uh, You get into recovery. And I just had this image of you're a child. You know, I don't care what age you are. You walk into those rooms day one. you're, You're a brand new creature. And you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea what it, it, if there is a destination, what the end of it is. So you're constantly asking, am I there yet? I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, I got into therapy. My first question to the therapist was, how long do I have to do this? I don't want to be with you the rest of my life. So <laughs> how long do, you know, anyway. Um, I just kind of was an image of, of, you know, you're on a journey with your parents. You're in the backseat of the car. You have no idea what, when you're going to get to where you're going to get. You don't know how long it's going to take. And then, Recovery is like they leave you at the rest area, throw you the keys to the car, and say, "We'll see you later." <laughs> you know? So, yeah, you know, I don't know how to drive the car. I don't know. So you're kind of reliant on the people around you, which are God's angels. I'm only here today because thousands of total strangers took an interest in my life and uh, wanted to see me make it sober. Mm. And um, I am so grateful for that. But those rooms were everywhere. I mean, I every club I worked, I went to a meeting before I got to the club. And uh, they told me to pray. I said, to what? And that was the journey for me. That's what the book is about, um, in the essence of, of eight years of seeking. And uh, all roads eventually led to Jesus. Mm. You know? But I needed to exhaust all those other options. And, uh, you know, and God let me, you know. He said, look, son, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you. Go ahead. If you think it's Buddhism, go ahead. Mm. You know, 
study it. And, uh, you know, my, my joke on Buddhism was, uh, you know, Buddha says that your misery is caused by your desires. If you can just get rid of your desires, you wouldn't be miserable. And I couldn't get rid of my desire to get rid of my desires. So, mm. <laughs> and you always you wanted your kids to be Buddhists at one point, didn't you? Yeah, that was short lived. I walked in, I had this revelation driving home one day. I want to raise the kids in a monastery because uh, I had just had a fit at a red light, and I thought, you know, these <laughs> these Buddhist monks—you never read about a road rage incident in the, in, from a Buddhist monk—and I didn't want my kids to be like me. I mean, that was, you know, I thought if I stayed away from them, they wouldn't pick it up. I, you know, again, I was so misinformed. But anyway, I come home, I tell Tammy, we're going to put the kids in a monastery. She goes, over my dead body. And she goes, it's finally happened. I go, what? She goes, the last screw has fallen out of your head. <laughs> this isn't good, you know, and I went, okay. I mean, that's how long it took her to talk me out of it. You know? Yeah. I, I, I had a plan, and she said no. And I go, okay, yeah, that's fine. I wasn't that convicted to it, but... I, I did have a reason for that. She, did, she didn't even ask. You know, it would have been nice if she said why, and then I could have explained. Yeah, it. the way you explain and it then. now makes makes sense. I'm talking with Jeff Allen. When we come back, I, you mentioned Tammy, your wife. Uh, I love how you met her, and uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. We've talked uh, this last half hour, um, Jeff. If you just hold on, we'll be back. I'm Paul sure. Batura, and you're listening to What a Life: Lessons from Legends. A legend today is uh, the comedian Jeff Allen, and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening, or you're listening to What a Life Lessons from Legends. And what a treat today. We're talking with comedian Jeff Allen, who has a new book, Are We There Yet? My Journey from a Messed Up to a Meaningful Life. If you are a fan of his, you should get this book. And if you're, this is the first time you're hearing about him, why? You got to YouTube him and, and find out where he's performing because you'll enjoy it. It's a, it's, it's a fun journey. Um, Jeff, let's start with your, since people know your comedy. Thanksgiving night, 1978, kind of your first yes. foray onto the stage. Tell us about that night. Oh, my gosh, it was awful. I, uh, <laughs> I had been going to the club since August. I finally worked up or drank up the courage to hit the stage on Thanksgiving night. Thursday night was open mic. Sunday night was open mic. So put my name down. Everybody ran out because they, they knew me now. I mean, I was there every night for three months. And uh, I walked out, and I, I burbled and gurgled and you know, uh, managed to vomit my way through five minutes of what I can't tell you anything. And I drove home in a flurry of tears because I was so humiliated and shamed and, and, uh, went back Sunday night, you know, and cause I didn't know if I was a sadist or a masochist. Somebody was getting punished and enjoying it. And it was me or the audience. I don't know, but some MC came over to me and said, you're going to have to make some sense tonight. We're still trying to figure out what you said Thursday night. So, that was my start, you know. Tammy asked me years later, you know, when I met her, she goes, what made you go back? I said, I, it, I knew if I could get past the fear of this, I could I could do this, you know. And it's interesting, in hindsight, I tried to get out of it two or three different times over the years uh, because, it, you know, it just bottomed out. I couldn't do it anymore. And each time something came in, I think God intended me to do this. Uh, it's just I wasn't paying attention to him at all. Yeah, you know? and uh, I tried to join the Air Force. You know, and, uh, I was one day from taking the physical, and a phone call comes in. And they said, "Hey, you want to do a comedy show in Cincinnati?" I go, "Sure," and I took off and left the Air, uh, the Air Force behind. And um, so I always wondered how different my life would have been had that call never came in. Mm. 
and I took the physical and got into the Air Force, you know, for six years. Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't be doing comedy. Or if you had gotten that job at Domino's. Domino's, yeah, that one, that was, that was really humiliating. I got a 22-year-old with acne uh, looking at my resume going, what do you do? And I go, well, I'm a comedian. What does that mean? I go, it means I can find addresses, you know, because isn't that, you know, and he says, well, how does that qualify you for delivering pizza? And I go, you're not splitting atoms back there, are you? You know, I mean, are you kidding me? It's a pizza delivery. Don't make me beg to deliver pizzas. Oh boy! Never hired me. I couldn't get a job delivering pizzas. Oh boy, they they missed out. That should That's... tell you all you need to know about me. Who makes and, uh, since you've been laughed since you've been saved? Who makes you laugh? Like uh, you know, comedians that we would know. Oh, Brian Regan kills me. Um, uh, actually, and this one is not for the Christian, but uh, I used to live in Boston, and I love Bill Burr. I just I love Boston. I loved Boston. I had to get out of there because I, I couldn't stay sober there. Mm. And somebody said to me, uh, how does he think of like that stuff? And I go, you ever lived in Boston? I said, there's five Bill Burrs at every bus stop. <laughs> I mean, that's Boston. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, he's it, it, salty and he cusses, but you know, I grew up with all that. So I, it doesn't bother me. Wasn't Stephen Wright uh, from Boston too? Stephen Wright. Yes. Did Matter of fact, he was really just taken off when I moved there. It was working in 85. Uh, everybody was talking about Steven then, you know, and, um, uh, Lenny Clark, uh, 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 what's his name? Dennis Leary, uh, were some of the bigger, bigger names to come out of there. But, um, uh, but, uh, um, Brian Regan just kills me. Uh, we had, we had crossed paths a couple times when I was living in New York. I saw his first set at Catch a Rising Star when he auditioned for Letterman. And he just, I mean, murdered the room. I mean, it was just magic. And I saw him a few nights later standing at the bar waiting to go on. And I said, so when you doing Letterman? He goes, they passed. And I went, what? Mm. They passed on that set? I went home and told my wife, we got to move. I'm never going to get on Letterman. <laughs> and that's the only reason I moved to New York, or Jersey. I was living in Jersey, but working in New York. And then uh, it wasn't but a month or two later, he was on the show, and then his career took off. But um, him, uh, yeah, there's a... A bunch of guys uh, on Dry Bar. That, yeah. um, I, I, I just cruise. I forget names. What goes into making but, a set? I mean, you, you literally sit down with, I mean, Seinfeld has done those documentaries where he talks about the yellow legal pad. I mean, what's your style right. for working your material to the point where you feel good about bringing it up on stage? Well, I don't care when I bring it up. I mean, I, you know, I'm doing an hour, hour and 15 in my shows, so I got uh, time to do a couple of bombs i opened the other night with one that i uh that i had been working on and i decided to open with it because i've been forgetting to do it um and i don't bring notes up so i just kind of wing what goes through my head so it was um when we, when i was a kid and i'm sure when you were a kid uh the only people that had tattoos were sailors prisoners or sideshow acts at the uh, carnival right and I said, we used to pay money to see a tattooed woman, and, and now she's my cashier at Trader Joe's. <laughs> you know? That is but very, very when true. When I left, I dropped a couple bucks on the table, and I said, just take that, man. I used to pay to see that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... so anyway, I, I opened with it, which really has no place in the show yet. I, and so that's the process. I, I get one, I go, All right, now i got to build some other stuff around it, you know, and... Um, the other one that just was relatively new, my wife and I were on vacation up in Montana with, uh, to see the grandkids in June, and we were, did a lot of driving around Montana, three, three, four hours in a day. 
And I realized, I told her, I said, you know, Tammy, we're at a point in our marriage where every conversation we have turns into a game of charades. We can't remember anything. Everything is just a guessing game. You know, because she started the conversation with, I saw that guy you worked with in New York on TV the other day. And I go, which guy? She goes, I don't know. You know the guy. No, that's why I'm asking you. Who was it? She goes, it was New York. I go, City? Oh, I don't know. Well, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse. Those are the clubs I work in in New York. Well, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't New York. I said, all right, well, what'd the guy look like? Well, he was a white guy. Well, that narrows it down. <laughs> you know, uh, was he tall, short? Well, he's your height. So six foot, six one? No, he wasn't that tall. Then he's not my height, Tammy. You know, <laughs> give me something to work with. Anyway, five minutes of this, and then she just drifts off, and there's no closure. <laughs> and that's every conversation we have begins with, I, you know, that, that thing, that thing, you know, that let's, let's have a dinner at that restaurant. You know the restaurant. No, I don't. I, uh, which one? Was it Italian? I, I can't remember. Was it Italian? I, that, that, I, I just remember it was really good. You know, yeah. so she, I said, you can't ever leave me. You can't. I, I'll have no reference to anything in my life um, at all. Uh, starting new? Are you kidding me? Oh, that's so good. That resonates with a lot and of people listening. we got listening. into a discussion about if I leave her for a younger woman. She says, okay, if you ever leave me for a younger woman and you go beyond one generation, you're a creep. You understand that? So I said, so wait a minute, i got to tell my friends, I, I, I dumped my wife for a 50-year-old. I go, why would I do that? That's not even a story. <laughs> oh, that's okay, so, so good. You're stuck with me. I go, you are. I am, I guess. I guess I'm stuck with you. These are conversations we're having yeah. lately, you know, as old people. You know? I, yeah, no, and I, she told me the other day, she said, you do know that if you get arrested by the police, the headline's going to read, elderly man arrested by the police. <laughs> You're in that category now. I go, that's great. You have arrived. Yeah, so mention, you mentioned Tammy. You speak lovingly about her in your bits, but that kind of changed, right? You kind of had a, a bit of an edge. But first, how, how did you meet her? I love the circumstances. I mean, what a perfect place. Well, for I t- opened the book with uh, my proposal to her at Cleveland Airport baggage claim after coming off a red eye on an impulse because I wanted the reader to fall in love with my romantic side first, <laughs> you know, and... uh I have paid the price for that baggage claim proposal. What I didn't write in the book was years later, uh, 2020, we were in Israel with Governor Mike Huckabee, and I told the Gov, I said, take my wife off to the side and distract her for about a half hour. I'm going to buy a ring. And I proposed to her in Israel in February of 2020 to right a wrong. I said, I'm writing the wrong of of asking you. And it was funny. I was so nervous, Paul. I'm telling you, I, I... at this point, we were married 30, 34 years, and I'm asking her to marry me again and in front of a room full of people, and I'm shaking. Mm. And at one point, you hear on the tape, Tammy whisper, get on your knee. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to get on one knee and open the box. Anyway, so anyway you, that's how I opened the book. Yeah, uh, but you met her in a comedy club. Comedy club, yes, and uh, fell in love with her laugh. She was a smoker 37 years ago, so... When you cannot get oxygen into your lungs, that is music to a comic's ears. So, yeah, but I fell in love with that laugh, man. And things didn't start out so great. I mean, what a honeymoon in the Ozarks, and kind of it kind of went downhill from there, right? Yeah, I forgot the Deer Motel was a deer. Uh, they they rented it out. It was a double wide trailer. They rented out to deer hunters, and uh, that was our uh, honeymoon suite. And uh, she was uh, pregnant, so she was. Uh, morning sickness. She didn't even have to get out of the bed. She would just lean over and get sick in the sink. So, uh, yeah, I was quite a catch, Paul. I mean, if you haven't picked up by it now, uh, I was quite a catch. 
But obviously, if they had dating apps in '85. Mine would have read alcoholic, drug addict with rage issues looking for a single female to overlook a aforementioned character flaw. <laughs> That's uh, people be lining up, yeah. But I mean, obviously, redem- yeah. redemption here, though. I mean, because you 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 guys went through a lot of challenging times as couples. You you, you almost got divorced. Um, you talk about uh, filling out paperwork, leaving it in your drawer. I mean, you're you're on your way to get divorced, and what happens? She says, "Pull over." We're on uh, in Arizona now. We've been married seven or so years, and she says, "Pull over." And uh, I thought she was going to be sick, and she said, uh, "This is wrong. Let's go home." And I loved her. I did. I loved her. I, I just felt at this point in my life I was damaged goods, and there was no point. And going on, I just looked at her and said, "You're out." She says, "What do you mean?" I go, "We drive ten. We file these papers. You're you're rid of me. You deserve better than me." But I also mentioned nobody you meet or marry from here on out will love those boys as much as I do. They just won't. And um, but I love I love you. I just don't know how to love at all. Hmm. And um, you deserve better. You've given me seven years. So uh, anyway, she said, uh, "We're going. Let's go home." And I said, "If we go home, divorces." No longer on the table. It's no longer an option. We didn't know each other when we got married. Hmm. And those first seven years were a learning curve that was just eye-opening. And to her, you know. And um, anyway, she said, okay. And then um, about six months later, she took the kids to Ohio. And I had been collecting Bible tapes. There was all this other stuff going on around us, you know, um, that um, we share about in the book. That... um, well, tell us, tell us about those tapes. I mean, your friend Phil is the one who gave them to you. Yeah. Is that right? And then the, the tapes are from some a lot of our favorite pastor, Pastor Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church. Yes. I Tommy's mean, a you know, good friend. What, you know, you're, you're at a low point in your life. You're putting those tapes in. What happened? Well, it was interesting. Um, you have to understand, at this point, I had given up on ever finding anything meaningful i just now realized that okay if it's money i need to make money we were losing the house we had filed a bankruptcy that didn't state anything the bill you know they were ready to take the house from me i was a couple months behind in the mortgage and uh, just hanging on and um anyway uh, she takes the kids and gathers up these tapes i've been collecting for about a year year and a half and says if you're not going to listen to them i'm throwing them out i'm sick of looking at them just middle envelopes collecting dust so I said, put them in the living room, you know, on the floor. Uh, we had lost our furniture in the bankruptcy. They repoed that, you know. So we had just this empty living room with a boombox in it. <laughs> you tell me God doesn't. He didn't even want a couch in there in case I'd fall asleep. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm walking by one day, and that little tiny voice that's in each and every one of us has opened one up, and then I get into this wrestling match um, to open a, a, a t- an envelope. And uh, when I went back in the Bible to demonic realms and angelic realms, this is kind of where I went to in my life. I was able to lay this over God's Word and say, this must have been one of those moments where there's this struggle. It was a stupid tape. You know, I never had this struggle opening up a Bruce Springsteen tape. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? But here it is, this Bible information, and I'm standing there going, and then at one point the, my brain says, it's just biblical trash. You know, move on. Anyway, I open it up and uh, dump it out. It's Ecclesiastes. I had no idea what that meant. So I had to get the Bible out of the junk drawer I threw in a year and a half ago. So I put this tape in, and from the beginning, uh, it was NIV, so it was meaningless, meaningless, all in life is meaningless. And my heart leapt. That's my conclusion. Coming from a pastor in Texas, from the, the middle of the Bible, you know, and um, 
It went on to go nothing new under the sun. Uh, the eyes never get enough of hearing, uh, of seeing. The ears never get enough of hearing. And at the time, I'm looking at my, my video library and my audio library, and I'm going, my gosh, that's so true. Hmm. I just keep buying stuff to feed whatever. And I kind of knew this uh, in my soul. So what I got out of that first sermon, when Tommy's conclusions were, like, you know, Solomon's conclusions were, life without God will have no meaning. And if there's no meaning in your life, there's no purpose. And if there's no purpose, suicide. And I just went, yes, that's it. That's it. And I just jumped into the Bible. I mean, I, you know, Tammy was gone. I had no children. I had really no work. So all day, every day, I listened to one tape or another tape. I listened to a bunch of them over and over again. And what bothers me more than anything now is I lost that Bible years ago. I left it in a hotel room, mm. and my thought was, I sure hope somebody picked it up and got used because I had notes. I wrote the word "wow" next to what joy do you get out of those things you are now ashamed of, you know? And I thought of my drug and alcoholism. All those years, I thought I was having fun, and I realized I'm just ashamed of that now, you know? And I, I get no pleasure from that. And I wrote, wow, that's so true, you know? Everything in that book just spoke to me, you know? And then I got to Genesis 1-1, and God, in the beginning, God. And I knew in my living room at that moment there was a God. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that there was a God. And I, and I cursed him, and I blasphemed him, and I mocked him my entire life. Mm. Wow. And I called my buddy Phil up in tears. I was crying. There's a God, Phil. I know there's a God. And he says, yeah, I've been trying to tell you like for a year, year and a half. <laughs> you know? And yeah. he says, what's the problem? And I said, blasphemy, cursing him. And he said, uh, you know, have you heard about the cross? And I, I went at the cross. He goes, well, you know, I shouldn't ruin the ending for you. But he said, uh, so why don't you spend some time in the New Testament? You know, and it's funny in hindsight looking that every tape I opened up was Old Testament. Job, um, Ecclesiastes, you know, Kings, Judges, you know, all of this stuff. And uh, it was speaking to me, but there was this idea of this judgmental God. And when I got to the prodigal son, my gosh, it broke me. Mm. To this day, I'm talking 27 years later, if I hear a sermon on the prodigal son, I just break mm. the, the, the image yeah. of this God whose inheritance has been thrown back in his face, just squandered all of these good things that he gave his son. And then the son, rightfully, in my eyes, in all of our eyes, thinks, why would he want me mm. I'm, after I'm, what I did to him? We're and then the thought of that father mm. just running to his son. Amen. That's wow. a great image. What an image. That's, yeah. that's Jeff Allen. He's the author of a new book, Are We There Yet? His remarkable journey, he says, from a messed up to a meaningful life. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. <clears throat> what I'm struck by here, Jeff, you know, these tapes and these people who God put in your life. You know, a lot of times life is kind of messy. It, we don't see immediate results. Here these tapes were given to you. They were piling up. Uh, there may be somebody that you're encouraging out there uh, who you feel like, man, I feel like this is falling on hard soil. Like, be patient. I mean, things happen. And uh, you're a, a wonderful example of that. <clears throat> Your book is great in that it's sort of like a big thank you letter to all these different people. I wonder if I could just yeah. throw, throw a couple names out. You mentioned um, uh, Chaz Corzine. Tell us yeah. about him. I love Chaz. He was uh, um, a, a friend of a friend. I had gotten saved, and I was... Uh, I came to Nashville. We were living in Arizona. We were looking to move. We didn't know where we were, but we didn't want to stay there anymore. And um, 
I came to Nashville, and I, and a girl that I had worked with on the road uh, was uh, hosting a show at uh, Zany's, the comedy club, and we were we were good friends. And I said to Beth, you know, how are you doing? She goes, well, I'm in radio now. I'm not doing uh, the, the road anymore. I said, well, good for you, man. You get to stay in one place. And uh, she says, how are you doing? I said, well, uh, I'm a born-again Christian. She goes, oh, really? My brother's one of those. <laughs> and uh, she said, he has, she's part of, he's part of this, uh, what we, we like to call the Christian Brat Pack here in Nashville. And it's Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, it's all these people, and Chaz Corzine. And I go, well, who's that? I've heard of Amy and Michael. You know, and he goes, uh, she says, well, he's, he manages them. He's a manager, but he loves comedy. Huge comedy fan. So she hooked us up, and he came out and saw a show one night, and then we had dinner afterwards, and we became just really close friends. And um, uh, I naively thought when I got to Nashville, he would pick up my career and manage it. He goes, well, I got a play, I got a full plate with what I have, you know. But everything that I have in my career right now is a direct link back to Chaz Corzine. Hmm. Uh, he, he had Gary Chapman, a uh, singer, was one of his clients, and Gary was doing a show uh, on Sunday at the Ryman called Sam's Place. Uh, and I, I, we had just moved to Nashville, and Tam, you know, Chaz invited us to go backstage at the Ryman, which was just powerful, thinking of all the, you know, Elvis was back there, you know, sure. uh, Vinnie Pearl, Johnny Cash, uh, you know, you, you name it. They all worked the Ryman at some point. And I'm standing back there, and Chaz goes, hey, you want to go up and do five minutes? You know, and I go, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, so he put me on the stage, and I did five minutes. And from that, somebody saw me, uh, called my house. I got your number from Chaz. Uh, he's uh, we doing a show for Christ Presbyterian Choir at the Belmont Mansion. It's only forty people. It's in the living room. We, we have no money. Would you be interested? I go, oh sure. If it's for Chaz, I you know I got no problem. So anyway, from there, some guy waits around. I meet him. His name is Bob McKenzie. He's good friends with Bill Gaither. I'd never heard of Bill Gaither. He laughed. He said. You never heard of Bill Gaither? I go, nope. He goes, oh, this is going to be better than I thought. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to hook you guys up. And then we had lunch with Bill, and Bill picked me up. Anyway, all of it, just one domino, a door. And my manager, who's Jewish, kept saying, there's another God thing. There's another God thing. This is a God mm-hmm. thing. He goes, holy cow, Jeff. This is the, I mean, there was a period of two or three years where we just saw God's hand in everything, mm-hmm. everything, you know. It's the way God works, right? I mean, I know Steve Jobs famously said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. And that's certainly the case with you and your life. And is that where you, at the Gaithers, is that where you met Andy Andrews? Yeah, yeah. I think I had heard of Andy, obviously. Everybody kind of knew Andy. And then I met him uh, at a Gaither event. And we just had the wives hit it off, his wife, Polly and Tammy. As a matter of fact, he keeps telling me, I got I to gotta come down to his house in uh, Orange Beach. I, I had a date scheduled in August, and Tammy and I ended up with COVID, so I couldn't go down there. Mm. And um, I'm trying to reschedule, but he wrote the forward. He wrote a beautiful forward. Um, it really, I called him up. I said, Andy, you nailed it. My gosh, um, you meet two couples, and don't give up on the, don't give up on them. You know, read who we were, and then who we are. Mm. You know, and um, just he's such a wonderful soul. Well, you've crossed paths with a lot of great people, and there's a lot more to the story. I mean, you're, you're, the journey is hard to encapsulate into a single interview here. So if, yeah. if this is intriguing to you uh, as a listener, please go pick up Jeff's new book. It's called Are We There Yet? My Journey from a Messed Up to a Meaningful Life. It's out by Salem Books, um, anywhere books are sold. I always love when people say, where can I get the book? I mean, I think we know where we can yeah. get books, right? Well, we always try to push the Christian bookstores just because they're struggling. 
and most and if there's one near you, go in and you may find two or three other things that'll help you out too. You know. And when are you? Uh, where you? I mean, you perform how many dates a year? I mean, you're on the road a lot. Oh my gosh, I, I'm busier than I've ever been, which is a good thing. And Tammy, it was interesting. I shot my first movie last year, which will be out at Christmas. I think it's a faith-based, independent faith-based. My first, you know, feature film. Oh, what's the? And do you know the about name? A week and a half into it. Um, Tammy calls. We get into an argument on the phone, um, and over when are you coming home? When are you going to be there? And I go, well, I got five more days here, and then I got to do this. And then she she just goes, oh my god, you know. And I said, Tammy, you know. And, she, and then we ended up in this argument. And at one point, she says, don't get, don't hate me for missing you. And I go, holy cow, that's a country lyric. <laughs> you know, that, that's a song somewhere, yeah. you know. But that was uh, I called my manager. I, I've always said to. Uh, my manager that ever since we got our marriage back on track, I said, Tammy will determine the depth of my calendar, how, how much I work. And, um, anyway, I called him and said, don't book another day. That was September of last year. And I said, don't book another day. He goes, I'm way ahead of you. I stopped booking you in August for this year. Uh-huh. So, um, I knew, I knew you were going to come to this point. Um, I have a great manager that uh, looks out for me, um, on so many different levels and, and not just trying to fill his bank account. Yeah, uh, he knows that if this marriage um, is suffering, then I'm not going to be good at what I do. Isn't that the name of one of your tours? Happy, happy wife, happy, happy life? wife, hey, wife. Yeah. yeah, that's that great. was the name of the sitcom pilot we did. Ah, happy wife, that's right. Happy wife. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on on YouTube in person, and uh, hopefully another book down the road. Yeah, if your uh, listeners want to see, I have two specials on Amazon Prime. Um, honor thy wife, and uh, I can laugh about it now. Um, and then uh, they can go to jeffallencomedy.com, and, and their calendar's up. And um, hopefully they read the book and pass it on. That would be great. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.